Good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Live in the Studio where once a month we celebrate all things TV past and present. Tonight we are live in the studio with Ladies on the Tube. My name is Anna and if you are listening to this podcast it is Thursday May 19th 2011 and this is for the people at home. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and adult themes and may not be suitable for younger audiences. A brief intro to the night before you meet everybody. I've been working at ACME for the last few years and subscribed to an email alert called Daily Ratings. These are just statistics that I see every morning. Um, Sometimes I look, sometimes I don't look. Um, But right at the top, every day after it has screened, is two and a half men. Being gross. And I was going to write my own little something about uh, Two and a Half Men, but I decided to uh, borrow from Catherine Devney, who is here with us this evening. So I'm going to quote from an article that she wrote um, for The Age. Two and a Half Men is the perfect title because there are no women in it. Sure, there are beauty queens, fat ladies, mean mothers, pushy bitches, ex-wives, bunny boilers, dumb blondes and whores. But no female characters, just caricatures. No women, just slaves, trophies and bitches. So I did consider doing a live in the studio on Two and a Half Men, but that made me feel even grosser. Um, So as the wonderful antidote, I decided to round up some of the most extraordinary talent of women who have featured in talks over the last few years here to bring you ladies on the tube. So this is not just not two and a half men. Uh, It's a long, hard look at women, ladies, sheilas, chicks, girls and girlies on the box. And tonight we are joined by Esther Milne, Clementine Ford, Mel Campbell, Catherine Devney and uh, Easy B for an assortment of talks, performances and ad breaks. Uh, We were going to uh, be joined by Alexandra Helen Nicholas, Angela Nadalianis and Sage Walton, uh, but they send their apologies. They are otherwise engaged with nasty colds, pregnancy and unforeseen board engagements. Uh, So I would like to introduce you first to Easy B, who will be providing the ad breaks. Uh, Easy B is a published award-winning poet and slam champion. She has performed poetry all around the world and is a state coordinator for the Australian Poetry Slam. In September, she was the first ever Australian to compete in Slam Review as part of the 2010 Berlin International Literature Festival and the first ever Australian to win. Emily is also the state coordinator for the National Australian Poetry Slam, National Education Officer at the Australian Poetry something, and coordinator at the first ever Team Slam Out Loud. Uh, So Easy B will provide the ad breaks, but our first speaker tonight is uh, Mel Campbell, and Mel Campbell is a freelance journalist, blogger and cultural critic. She is the founding editor of online pop culture magazine The Enthusiast and the national film editor of the Thousands Network of City Guides. She lectures in online journalism at Monash University and contributes essays, features, reviews and opinion to a variety of online and offline publications. Thank you for coming. Enjoy the evening, and I welcome Mel to the stage. All right, as you can see by my uh, PowerPoint, I'm going to be talking about women who are the boss. Um, I thought about doing that rap, you know, like a boss, something like a boss, but I thought that would just be embarrassing. 
Um, What I'm not going to do is talk about strong women. We hear this category of strong women all the time, uh, especially when it comes to pop culture, as though these are some avatars for all women to emulate. Um, I think that this idea of a strong woman is ridiculous because how they usually define a strong woman is um, being mean to people, um, just not taking any shit from anyone, um, not according with what women are meant to be like, but at the same time, totally according with what women are meant to be like. I think it's more interesting to see what happens when women are put in charge, when they are the boss. So I'm not going to be talking about women who star in their own vehicles, except when they are also the boss. Um, I'm going to be talking with the women with whom the buck stops. Um, So let's have a look at, um, at a bit of history, first of all. So The idea of a working woman in um, TV really started with the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, There's that famous shot of her throwing her berry up in the air, declaring she's going to make it after all. Now, while she wasn't the boss and she had a male boss, she was really the uh, the first mainstream female that you could see at work in a position of responsibility. Um... Then there's Prisoner, Cell Block H. Um, that's, my, that's my picture of the freak there. Now, Prisoner is interesting because it was a show primarily cast using women. And so it got used to the, uh, the idea that a woman was in charge. The governors of the prison were all women. The prison warders were pretty much all women. The prisoners, well, duh, because they were in a women's prison, um, were women. And the men were reduced to being the eye candy, the sex objects. Prisoner is a really interesting show, but I'm not going to talk that much about it. Um, And who could forget Murphy Brown, the alcoholic, middle-aged news interviewer who was always denied access to the White House in both the Bush, the first, and Clinton presidencies. Now, this photo that I'm showing you is um, from a later season of Murphy Brown. In the early seasons, she had a 25-year-old, very callow producer who was her boss. So you can imagine that this chafed with Murphy having this little idiot um, telling her what to do. In the later seasons, Lily Tomlin was cast as the new producer of the show. And, um, of course, Lily Tomlin was in Nine to Five, that seminal movie about women in the workplace, women being taken advantage of. And so audiences brought those intertextual associations with Lily Tomlin to Murphy Brown. Murphy Brown obviously also engaged with politics in a way that... um, Lots of shows still don't dare to do. And um, Dan Quayle, well, he's generally an idiot, so maybe we shouldn't talk too much about him, um, brought up the fact that Murphy Brown had had a child out of wedlock and chose to raise her child as a single mother, as some symbol of the decay of modern America. Um, This was a very important show, but Murphy Brown still is not the boss. Now, when we're talking about women bosses, there are man industries and there are lady industries. So this is highly tied up with genre. So when we're talking about a melodrama, a soap, anything directed to a teen audience or a primarily female audience, it's usually what I call lady industries that are represented. Now, this is, of course, I work in a a quote-unquote lady industry. I'm like a freelance journalist. Um, However, it's usually women working in the creative industries. They're cartoonists. They're designers, they're fashion designers especially. Uh, who could forget the Forrester dynasty in The Bold and the Beautiful, for instance? Um, but it's when women are... It's, it's a kind of wish fulfilment almost. 
the idea of the working in lady industries. Now, you're seeing here Veronica's Closet starring Kirstie Alley. Um, she played a woman who ran a lingerie label that was founded on the idea of romance. But the comedy in the show came from the fact that the romance in her own life was extremely inept and that she was aided in almost all aspects, her personal life and her professional life, by her loyal assistant Olive, played by Kathy Najemi. And of course, in the OC, we have Eleanor Waldorf, um, the mother of Blair Waldorf, who has a perplexingly um, couture-style fashion label, um, despite the fact that no one has ever heard of her outside the universe of the show. Um, this is from the, the pivotal fashion parade in season two, when um, Jenny Humphrey, uh, the teenage uh, wannabe fashion designer, has got some work experience going on with Eleanor, and um, Blair has been mean and has switched one of Jenny's own creations into the fashion parade. This was the dress that Jenny herself was meant to be wearing, but you can see that Serena, just to Eleanor's, well, stage left, actually to Eleanor's right, is actually wearing Jenny's dress. So what this gave Gossip Girl is this sense of women sort of striving to get ahead, backstabbing, bitching. It's, it's a woman versus woman kind of a world. This is Designing Women. Now, this was a, a hilarious kind of 80s um, show set in Atlanta with two mismatched sisters who started a design firm and they brought in two other women to help them and there was a, a man who kind of hovered uselessly around in the scenes. Um, designing Women is mostly thought of now as being hilarious because of its hilarious 80s fashions. Sex and the City, Samantha Jones, PR extraordinaire. Um, here's a rare photo that I could find of her with her clothes on, looking businesslike. <laughs> Samantha works for herself and she employs several assistants. It's interesting, I think in season three of Sex and the City, Samantha employed a male assistant who refused to kowtow to her demands. And this proved problematic for uh, Samantha, not only in the boss-assistant kind of relationship where you're used to you know, your assistant doing what the boss tells you, but also in her usual relationship that she's used to having with men where she can use her sexual wiles to get what she wants. Okay, now we've got the man industries, having talked about the lady industries. Now, procedural television of all sorts, and I'm focusing on three kinds, the cop drama, the hospital drama, and the law drama. These are all male-dominated fields, and so when we're talking about women participating in these fields, it's to really highlight the gender aspects of them being a woman in a man's world. Murphy Brown, she was in a man's world, but she was still holding her own. These women are, are portrayed as coming up against forces that they, um, well, they handle in various different ways, and it's about how to be a woman in this environment that doesn't value what a woman brings to the job. Okay, Prime Suspect, starring Helen Mirren, was um, one of the keystones of um, woman-dominated police drama. Basically, in the first season, um, Helen Ten oh, sorry, Jane Tennyson, uh, Helen Mirren's character, is a fairly senior police officer investigating a murder case and gradually realises that her male bosses are heavily implicated in the case and her, indeed, obstructing her investigation of the case. This is her in the first season... Basically, Prime Suspect was a series of telemovies, and by the final telemovie, um, Tennyson was, you know, lonely, had driven away all her family, was an alcoholic. The single-minded pursuit of justice basically destroyed her from within because it was her own impetus to, 
to catch criminals, a moral impetus that came from her personally that ended up destroying her. All right, now um, this is the closer with Kira Sedgwick. Um, many critics, and indeed the producers of the closer, uh, agreed that it owes a debt to Prime Suspect. Um, Kira Sedgwick plays a cop who has moved um, from the south to LA to head up an elite crime squad filled with dedicated detectives, but I'll get to those other dedicated detectives in a little while. What I find interesting is the contrast between the way that Prime Suspect was incredibly naturalistic, very grungy, incredibly humourless, uh, and the way that Kira Sedgwick is a very playful character and she uses her, quote-unquote, southern ways to solve crimes in a way that's uh, quirky and unusual in the LA environment that she finds herself in. All right, this is detect uh, sorry, Lieutenant Maria Lagueta from uh, Dexter. Now, Lagueta is a very interesting character because her personal life constantly intrudes into her job running the Miami Detective Division. Uh, basically, she seems to have been romantically involved with a remarkable number of Miami-based politicians, her fellow detectives, anyone who is involved in cases that she's working on. Um, in season one, she also makes no secret of the fact that she's um, romantically interested in Dexter himself, um, which is terribly embarrassing to Dexter and also to the audience because we know that Dexter is a heartless criminal. Um, now, in the books, it's interesting that she is killed off at the end of the first season, uh, sorry, the, at the end of the first book, but in the TV series, she comes back because she's a popular character. She adds heart. <laughs> Ironically enough, she adds heart to a show that is missing it in its key protagonist. And uh, through her conflicts of interest, she brings drama to the show in a way that other characters who are procedurally trying to solve the crimes that Dexter and his mates are committing uh, really don't provide. Uh, in the most recent series, um, series five of Dexter, she has become married to Angel Batista, who is um, Dexter's, uh, one of Dexter's fellow detectives. And Batista is teased by his colleagues about how his wife pulls in more money than him, that his wife bosses him around, is his boss. It's a source of uh, conflict between them that she is his boss at work she tries not to be his boss at home, but increasingly he feels resentful that she's trying to boss him around, basically. Okay, and now one of my favourite cop characters, Lieutenant Anita Van Buren from Law and Order. Now, Van Buren is fascinating. She has been one of the longest-serving characters on the show. S. Epitha Murkison, who plays her, joined in 1993, and she was planning to leave in 2010, last year. However, the show was cancelled, so basically her departure coincided with the show's final episode. Um, she has a wonderful style to her, a way in which she thoughtfully weighs up the possibilities that her detectives can follow, and then she just gives them an OK. She tells them, do that. Try that. But at the same time, she's not a pushover. She's always fighting for what she believes is right. Um, in perhaps the third season that she was featured on the show, she sued the police department because she believed that a white woman who was less qualified than her had been promoted over her head. Uh, so she's not afraid, afraid to fight the good fight. But what I find particularly interesting about Van, Bur Van Buren rather, is um, what happened to her in the final season, season 20 of Law and Order. Because basically, she was trying to ease her way as a character out of the show. So we had this idea that she's been diagnosed with stage two cervical cancer. 
Um, S. Evertha Murkison has spoken publicly about how she wanted it to not be a pretty cancer, no, no breast cancer with its pretty pink ribbons. She wanted it to be an ugly, unacknowledged kind of a cancer. And you see Van Buren trying to fight her cancer, even though she's still trying to do her job as heading up the police detective department. Here you see her with uh, her boyfriend, who is played by um, the guy from Ghostbusters. Um, now, she, she goes through all the usual cancer things. She loses her hair. She's in pain. She has a kind of moral conflict because she gets offered uh, medical marijuana, but that conflicts with her idea of, you know, police aren't meant to take drugs, the whole thing. Uh, and she also has to struggle with medical bills because, as most of us are aware, the American health system is totally screwed. Um, so let's show the first clip now. Lieutenant, we got a hit. What would you think... MRS stands for on a hospital bill. What? MRS on a hospital bill. Mrs.? It costs $89 and it's not covered by insurance. Well, then that's definitely not Mrs. Mucus recovery system. A box of tissues. <laughs> All right. One second. These, these are fine. He's got 30 days. Okay. All right, you got something. Yes. Our Jane Doe's name is Megan Carrick. Her fingerprints matched the set in the Pentagon's database. She was a soldier. You know, a freelance journalist who accompanied a USO troop to Afghanistan. The Pentagon, they take their prints and DNA in case they're blown up by an IED. It's thoughtful. They also list next of kin. I just got off the phone with Miss Carrick's sister in San Diego. They weren't very close, but she said Megan wasn't married. She'd never heard of any boyfriend, and our victim spent most of her time writing for a website called CitySmear.com. Is that what it sounds like? It digs up dirt on celebrities and others. The more embarrassing, the more they like it. You better find out who Miss Carrick had been embarrassing lately. I just basically wanted to have the sound effect there. <laughs> The final episode of Law and Order ever is called Rubber Room. And uh, it's called that because that is where teachers are sent in New York State when they have been bad. It's a room where they just sit around all day and are still paid their teacher's salary. But anyway, that was the criminal in the case. Um, we see Van Buren going for a scan that is clearly very important to her. It's going to tell her whether her cancer has recurred or whether it's in remission. Here you see her actually going through the scan. And then in the final scene of the final episode... You see her with her back to the camera on the phone. She's being given some news and you're not quite sure what the news is. But then finally her shoulders shrug and you're not quite sure whether they're shrugging in resignation or in relief. And then she turns to the camera and she says, thank you, God, thank you, God. And then she walks out of her office to a party that her colleagues are holding to pay for her medical expenses. And that is the final scene of Law and Order. I think it's incredibly powerful that we're seeing a woman here who's running the department. She's doing a fantastic job. You saw how she handles it, even in the, the midst of her illness. And yet she's still being a woman and she's allowed to be vulnerable. I think that's incredibly powerful. Now, medical bosses. A medical boss is part of a bureaucracy, much like a police boss, but a hospital system is its particular kind of bureaucracy. And I'm going to concentrate here on the character of Lisa Cuddy from House. Now, in the first season of House, Cuddy was presented as a kind of antagonist and a, a moral 
check on Gregory House, the protagonist. He's uh, unscrupulous. He'll do whatever it takes to get a diagnosis. She puts aside money from the budget in case they ever get sued. Um, She tries to cover up for him. In one episode, she commits perjury to try and save his medical licence when he's accused of malpractice for for a reason. Um, But the show has increasingly become hijacked by the personal relationship between the pair of them. It's, um, oh, you know how they always come up with those um, portmanteau names for couples when they're doing that shipping? Um, Huddy is, is what they refer to House and Cuddy as. Um, but it's the, that kind of screwball-style um, bantering that they do between them that has made them such a popular couple among the audiences. And can we have the next clip, please? I need you a minute. Silent reading time until I get back. My nanny called. Her daughter has a dance recital tonight. She can't work late. And I have a board meeting tonight. That's a problem. My mother can't come. She has a cooking class. Mm, really got a problem. If only there were some mature adult in my life who could pinch hit in emergencies like this. Love to, but I'm catching up on my back issues. Nudist circus. You should see what the fat lady's got under her big top. All I need is a warm body. I shall be asleep the entire time. I got a sick baby here who needs me. Yours is helping. You could deal with your team by phone. What about a little something extra when you get home? I'm not bargaining sex for babysitting. Besides, you owe me. For what? Sex. I still don't see a female doctor in that room. It's making me very unhappy. Fine. Out of the goodness of my heart. Which will make you happy. Which will make you desire me more. Which will turn into more sex. Be at my place at seven. So you can see this kind of sexual tension between them, but she's still trying to do her job, and she's also coping with being a single mother. Throughout most of the the series, Cuddy has struggled to be a parent. It's something that she's always wanted to do, but she's never been able to conceive, and finally she's adopted a child. And so the the rest of the episode shows House basically hanging out with this small, strange infant that he's ill-equipped to deal with because he has no emotions. Okay, now to the law. Now, law dramas are really interesting because they're explicitly about status, hierarchy and conflict. Um, Now, when women are law bosses, they're usually partners in a firm um, or they're they're working in concert with male partners. Uh, They have their own firm and they usually pursue their own legal interests. Um, Here you see... uh, Oh, my God, my mind has just gone totally blank. Family Law is the name of the show. That's the one that had um, Edwin Starr's War as the theme song. Um, She plays a a woman who was in partnership with her husband, but her husband, when their marriage broke up, absconded with all their clients. So she's struggling to forge her own legal career, and she's specialising, ironically enough, in family law, which is the very thing that tore her career apart in the first place. Now, here is The Good Wife. Now, The Good Wife is a fascinating um, show because it shows Alicia Florrick, who was a star law graduate but has subsumed her own career for her husband. She's starting off as a junior lawyer, although kind of a mature age entrant, into a firm that is run here by Christine Baranski's character. Um, If we can have the next clip, we'll show how Alicia was hired. So, we'll speak highly of you. He says you graduated top of your class at Georgetown. When was this? 
15 years ago. Uh-huh. And you spent two years at Crozier, Abrams and Abbott. Good firm. Will says you clocked the highest billable hours there. Why'd you leave? Well, the kids and Peter's career. Mm-hmm. Brian, can you get Mrs. Florick the files? Uh-huh. Sure. I want you to think of me as a mentor, Alicia. It's the closest thing we have to an old boys network in this town. Women helping women, okay? Okay. When I was starting out, I got one great piece of advice. Men can be lazy, women can't. And I think that goes double for you. Not only are you coming back to the workplace fairly late, but you have some very prominent baggage. But hey, if she can do it, so can you. Thanks, Brian. Like many law firms, we donate 5% of billable hours to pro bono. Sadly, I'm long past my quota on this one. Jennifer Lewis, 26 years old, taught second grade, accused of killing her ex-husband. Prosecution thought it was a slam dunk 45 years, but the jury came back last week deadlocked. Six jurors voted to convict, six not. I'm not even sure why the state attorney is retrying, except he wants justice. He wants to prove himself. So stick with my strategy from the first trial. The police focused on Jennifer so early in the investigation, they never even looked for the carjacker. Deadlock a jury a second time, they'll never retry a third, okay? Okay, our investigator can get you up to speed for the bail hearing at three. Cormac, I'm ready. The hearing's today? Well, we could delay, but that would leave Jennifer incarcerated for another month. Don't worry, you'll be fine. The ASA's not going to argue against a recognizance release. Oh, I need I do admit to failure my judgment in my private dealing with these women. What are you saying? Transaction is mine and mine alone. No private funds, whatever you can find. The recent news. Uh, As we saw in that previous clip, uh, one stereotype about female lawyers is that they're liberal, they're soft on crime, Um, you know, they support Hillary, uh, they do lots of pro bono work, they try and, and, you know, rehabilitate criminals. Um, Now, Diane Wiest um, played Nora, who was a uh, district attorney in Law and Order between 2000 and 2002. Now, she always struggled against the prejudice that she was soft on crime, that she was too liberal. And I think it's quite interesting, just in terms of when her seasons, her tenure in the show was, that when she left in 2002, it kind of coincided with that general turn in American culture post 9 11 towards greater conservatism and um, this being tough on crime rhetoric. And, and she always struggled with reconciling her personal beliefs with um, the need to bring criminals to justice. On the other hand, oh, we have Glenn Close in damages. Now, Glenn Close is never, ever, ever going to escape the baggage of fatal attraction, of being a crazy bitch. And what I love about damages is that she totally plays up to this. She is a crazy bitch. And she has some brilliant hiring and firing scenes. You can see her schmoozing and you can see her just totally destroying um, the people that she's firing. So let's have a look at two clips now, which are going to be a hiring sequence where she hires Rose Byrne and then a firing sequence where she gets rid of her. She always hires them back again, though. Well, if it isn't the maid of honour. Thought you might need a breather. Miss Hughes, what are you doing here? I had to meet you. Why? Because, kiddo, you're the first person stupid enough to turn me down. 
glad I'm not in your shoes. Family toasts, public displays of affection, absolute torture. <laughs> Bourbon? Um. Helps take the edge off. <laughs> I should probably just bite the bullet. <laughs> so, what about you, Ellen? Do you see a husband in your future? Yeah. I guess. I hope so. Well, you know what they say, hope is the thing with feathers. Emily Dickinson, that bitch will say anything. <laughs> Miss Hughes, I'm sorry I missed our meeting. No, no, I understand, I understand, the good sister. It's just that this is family, you know, and if I'd skip the wedding for a job interview... You confirm their worst fear. Which is? They're good, hard-working people and they're afraid of losing you. Oh, wait, how long have you been here? They actually remind me of my family. You love them, you do anything for them. The problem is, they don't have your ambition. And what's the problem? You try to lead by example, and they want you to lead, and then they resent you for it. They put you on a pedestal, look up to you, and then blame you for the crick in their necks. For that problem? I know how hard you work to get your shot with me, but you turned it down to be with your family. It's an interesting choice. Miss Hughes. Is there any way I could still interview? I think it'd be a waste of time, Ellen. You're hired. Right, so it started so auspiciously and you could see how she was wooing her with tales of family, how much she was like her, how she understood what it was like. But when it comes to firing, oh, she's a cold bitch. So let's have the next clip. Yeah. Miss Hughes, mm-hmm. I found a way to help. I went back to George Moore and he had... You did what? I spoke with George Moore. Who told you to do that? It was my own initiative. I thought we should follow... Thought? Who told you to think? You are in this office to wait for instructions. You don't have license to think. You have jeopardized the only serious lead we still have. How could you be so stupid? Just get out of my office. I'm so sick of your bullshit. Uh Uh-oh. What did you say to me? You heard me. Get out. And don't bother coming back.
So you can see that law dramas offer these piquant kinds of um, microcosms of gender relations. We've got the young, hungry lawyer trying to think for herself, how, how dare she? And then the older lawyer trying to slap her down. Now, let's move away from drama, although you, you've seen that there was a lot of comedy in a lot of these dramas, particularly the American ones. Um, comedy bosses are interesting because it's one of the few times that television allows workers to undermine the bosses and get away with it. So Green Wing is this hilarious British series that's nominally a medical drama. It's set in a hospital. It's about the doctors and their relationships with each other. You never, ever see a patient. Joanna Claus is the HR, uh, the HR director. She is meant to be in charge of an office full of women who are handling the kind of human resources aspects of the hospital, but her staff are constantly playing pranks on her, they're undermining her. The show is full of surreal kind of pranks and moments that are improvised by the cast. If we can have the next clip, I'll show you one of them. And these are for you, Dumpy. Right, all the slot needs transferring onto your database, so I want you to make a new file up here. These need to be transferred over here. These need to be transferred down there, and these... Oh, you shouldn't have these at all. What are these doing on it? Look, you're going to have to take all this and put it back up here and create a new... Did you just push a banana down my top? Yes. Take it out, please. I'm going back to my office now. However, in American sitcoms, the woman boss usually plays the role that maybe the sassy mum might play or the uh, wise-cracking old man. Uh, there's always a wise-cracking old man in just about every American uh, sitcom. Now, The Naked Truth was Taya Leone's first starring vehicle, but I find her boss Camilla, played by Holland Taylor, much more interesting. Um, she is a hard-bitten tabloid journalist who's not ashamed of it, whereas... Um, Uh-oh, a five-minute warning. Um, whereas... Um, she... she uh, sorry, Taylor Leone's character is always... Um, thinking that she's too good for the job. Have we got time for the next clip? This is from the pilot episode. Whoa, pretty terrific pictures. Yeah, save me the one where she gives me the finger. That's for Nikki. We had what was left of the urine tested. She's not pregnant. I'm sorry. It's not your fault. So what about the job? Would you feel if I sent you out to Mendota Heights, Minnesota to take a picture of a potato that bore an uncanny resemblance to Liza Minnelli? <laughs> oh, it's not likely to happen. It has happened, Nora. I have the facts right here. Picture on it was a little grainy, but by God, 
If I didn't know any better, I'd swear that little spud was about to break into New York, New York. <laughs> so, Nora, would you feel it was a waste of your intelligence and education and talent to investigate such a story? So, Camilla, do you? Miss Slyboots, I like you. You remind me of me when I was your age. How old are you? I'm 27. That's odd. I'm 25. <laughs> okay. Now, Nora, I'm just mystified. Are you sure you want to try this? Honestly? Well, this wasn't the plan. You know, the plan was I was going to have a brilliant career. I was going to win a Pulitzer Prize and have three perfect children with my husband who's worth, and I swear to God, $30 million. But I landed just shy of that. <laughs> Look, is the job mine or what? Nora, check into personnel. You're hired. Oh, thank you, thank you. Because if I didn't get this job, it was going to be... Nora, Nora, why, why don't you save this for some time when there's alcohol present? Okay, just let me be perfectly frank. We've had problems in the past with people who've tried to cross over from the mainstream press. They come in here with an attitude that a tabloid job is below them. Do you think this job is below you, Nora? Well, Camilla, I stole urine. <laughs> How much lower can I go? We shall see, Nora. We shall see. Okay, just to finish off, I want to talk very quickly about women who are the bosses off-screen, not just on-screen. Um, increasingly, women are producing the shows in which they star. They're producing the shows in which other people star. Um, Lucille Ball was the first woman to run a production company, Desilu, which she ran with her husband, Desi Arnaz. Um, that was back in the 50s. But even now, you've got people like Tina Fey producing 30 Rock, becoming a tremendously successful producer in her own right, and heaps of other women, uh, actors first, who've learned that to get control, to be the boss, they are the producers as well of the shows that they star in. They're controlling their own careers. Um, but... There is one who is the biggest boss of all. And I'm going to end with an epic montage, after which we will see Easy B performing her first ad break. So the final clip, please. Let's bring them out. Nicole Kidman, Oscar nominee, Kate Hudson. Yay! Welcome our favorite, Urban Cowboy, John Travolta! John Travolta! Please welcome my dear friend, John Travolta! Here is the vision herself, Mariah Carey, Mariah! So we're back with Mariah Carey! Keith Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal! Come on out, Beyonce! Please welcome Julia Roberts! 
my dear delightful friend Julia Roberts. Come on out. Jennifer Aniston, Matthew Perry, Courtney Cox, Jennifer Kimmel, Lisa Kudrow, and Matt LeBlanc. Please welcome Dakota Fanning. Please welcome John Kennedy. Please welcome Justin. It was about a year and a half ago when I first met Madonna. We <laughs> are the four guys who give love a bad name. Ms. Barbara Strife, Miley Cyrus, The Lion, Hugh Jackman, <laughs> Liam Nardone, <Dugg. laughs> Jim Carrey, Johnny Depp, Adam Williams, Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay, my dear, oh my God, would you say, please welcome Liz Lemon? No. break one <laughs> light and hewitt 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 big cat right big cat right light and hewitt light and hewitt ricky ponning grand hecket Alicia Mollick, 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 Alicia Pittman, Johnny Farnham, Big Cat Rod Light, he would light, he would light, he would Big Cat Rod Light, he would. Oh, Lara Bingo. Lara Bingo, Big Cat Rod Light, he would light, he would. Thorpey. Big cat rod light, you would light, you would light, you would light, you would. Oh, 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 Australian legend, Gallipoli, Smoko, Chalky Milk, Three Piece Feed, Rolled Gold, Aussie Hero, Chicken Hero, The Big Man. I am, you are, we are, volunteer firefighters, gold medalist, motorsport, Anzac spirit, bloody legend. Oh, yeah, but you know. Oh, yeah, but you know, nah, yeah, nah, but you know. It's going to half, step up to the plate. It's going to half, step up to the plate. Our Delta, she's grown up. Our Delta, she's grown up. You know, but mate, yeah, no, mate, you know, mate, mate, you know, mate. At the end of the day, at the end of the bloody day, it's night. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Easy B. Um, our next speaker this evening is uh, Dr. Esther Milne. Esther is Deputy Head of Humanities and Social Sciences at Swinburne University. Her research interests include communication practice across analogue and digital networks, legal and cultural framings of celebrity production and mail art. Her recent book, Letters, Postcards, Email, Technologies of Presence, is published by Rutledge. Please welcome Esther. Okay, thanks, Anna. Um, so I want to begin with a, uh, an amusing student story and a shout-out to all the amusing and fantastic students there. I can't see any of you, but I think there are some of you there. So thanks for coming. So the amusing story is uh, in a toot, and we're discussing research ethics, like why would you need to be ethical about doing research? Like what dangers might there be? Perhaps there are particularly vulnerable social groups whose circumstances need to be considered when conducting surveys. So someone suggests intravenous drug users, maybe, and those engaged in other illegal practices. So, yep. And then someone else says perhaps children are also vulnerable. Yep. And so, uh, oh, so I ask, who else would you say then might be vulnerable social groups? And a guy replies, women? So, of course... Hilarious, kind of. But it got me thinking about how I view feminism or myself as a feminist. And I guess I feel similarly about my Jewish identity as I do feminism. So when I'm around non-Jews, I'm quite hard-line. Yes to the state of Israel. Yes, we run Hollywood. Uh, Jesus was already a Jew, so how could we kill him? <laughs> and yes, it's true, many of us really do get married on chairs held up in the air. Deal with it. But when I hang out with my pretty insane, observant family, I bait my brother-in-law with the treatment of the Palestinians and why can't uh, women and men sit together in shul? So similarly, when I'm around mainstream or typical guys like that student I was describing, um, I'm also fairly hardcore, basically, until we earn as much as you do, don't tell us what to think or how to act. And even then, not so much. No matter what we wear, no means no. But again, when I'm around fellow fembots, I'm so much more conflicted. Uh, some women really are something, something. <laughs> there are bitches who don't deserve positive discrimination. Spice Girls feminism was crap. <laughs> the point that I'm making, and it seems particularly pertinent in the, era, in the era of the slut walk, is that I often feel I have to present a united front, as if the cause or ideology or whatever it is, is in need of protection. So it's with that sense of prevarication and ambivalence towards the representation of women on TV that I present the holy trinity of Californication, Laguna Beach, the hills, the city. So in general terms, the feminist media theory, in, within feminist media theory, there's basically two views. One says portrayals such as these work to position women as vacuous, consumerist, shallow, while the other argument emphasises an active viewer who negotiates a multiplicity of subjectivities. So I don't intend offering some kind of Tony Blair third way here, but I do want to complicate matters a bit. So in order to do so, I'm going to play a clip in a minute that introduces what's at stake in the show. Before that, though, a bit of background for those not familiar with it. So The Hills is a spin-off from an earlier reality TV show called Laguna Beach, The Real OC, which itself was a kind of reality TV version of the Gossip Girl-type show Orange County. 
Sure, as this lineage suggests, essentially the Hills is a bunch of privileged, apolitical, rich white kids going around shopping, hooking up and walking around with their huge Rachel Zoe handbags crooked in their arms. Literally, I die. No, she really did say that on her show. <laughs> OK, sorry if I've now lost half the audience with these arcane yet banal pop cultural references. I guess one can only hope that there's some Andrew Boltish person sitting out there right now live tweeting about the ridiculousness of the university and taxpayer burden. <laughs> Or as the Hills narrator LC might put it, awkward. Or, as her replacement Kristen would undoubtedly scream while completely trashed and snorting coke, sucker. <laughs> so this clip is from an episode called Don't Cry On Your Birthday, and it's where arch-frenemies LC and Heidi Montag meet unexpectedly at LC's surprise party. In the meantime, Spencer, Heidi's husband, is out on a boys' night and is hitting on the bartender, Stacey. So then someone texts the girls back on the boat to say he's playing up, and the rest, as they say, is unwritten. Sorry, that's another in-joke for anyone who knows that the title song for the show is called Unwritten and contains this astute line. Feel the rain on your skin. No one else can feel it for you. No one else, no one else can speak the words on your lips. I think it is, well, you can't deny it. <laughs> I think it's quite hilarious and can't be completely coincidental that the program's title song is about things being spontaneous, unscripted or an open book when the main criticism of this reality TV program is, of course, its careful editing and scripting practices. OK, if we could just show the clip, please. Heidi, do you even want to know right now? Yeah. It was like one hour dollars, right? We went to the dime. And now they're like hanging out with some girls. What? What girls? No, I read the text. Not Are you kidding? It just says that he's flirting with the bartender or something. It's Spencer? Serious right now? You're not taking shots with the bartender and getting her number. What planet are you on? I'm offended that you really just asked me. Who's spreading these rumors? The camera is texting us. Your brother is so sleazy. 
Did he, did he really text out to Stephanie? That's what he told me. Uh, well, I'm gonna go top of this bowl right now. Camera just got beat up, I think, for that. You're gonna go what? If he's, if he's really texting out to Stephanie, he's gonna get beat up right now. What are you talking about? Spencer? What? Dude, why don't you just forget about it? Let's get out of here. Drop it. Let's bounce. Call it a night. Yeah. Steph never wrote me back. Excuse me, I have a word with Cameron. Can we come talk over here? So why did I just get a call from Heidi Hysterical saying that you texted Stephanie that I'm over here giving the bartender my number? I didn't say you were giving her a number, but I'm just saying you're out here hitting on a bartender. She deserves to know. Did you just say I'm hitting on the bartender? Yeah. I mean, you are, aren't you? Are you trying to get her, Cameron? Because right now, you don't smile either. Hit me first so I can fuck you up. That's real, dog. You just got into my business. Touch me first so I can fuck you up. Come on, dude. Touch me. Touch me. Just touch me. Touch me. Touch me. Touch me, dog. So I can Push me. That doesn't count. Yeah, come on. I can't be the half 
friend to you. I can't sit by and be like, and it's good. It's the last thing I ever wanted. You were the person that I loved and adored more than anyone. My favorite stories are my stories of you. My favorite memories are my memories of you. have a drink. <laughs> and then we go from there. Did you know so laughing. Um, so hopefully those not familiar with the program will have gathered a little bit about its narrative voice and scope. And again, of course, it's a ridiculous show. But I'd like to ask, uh, what if it's good? Like, not so bad it's good, but what would we identify if we thought this was a poignant, valuable, powerful engagement with women? How might the text achieve this reading? Well, I'd say, for one thing, it's quite a sophisticated exploration of female friendship. I can definitely identify with the fraught friendship between Elsie and Heidi. OK, maybe not the sex tape bit. So I don't know how many people know about it, but there's a sex tape, obviously, involved in it, that Spencer um, either may... Well, no, he didn't may... Maybe that would actually explain their antagonism towards each other, but no, it's not that. He put out a rumour that there was a sex tape, and I don't think there was a sex tape. or well, there was, but she, he was completely involved in it. Imagine if it was you. Just have some compassion. Anyway, so, as I say, I can identify with that, but, yeah, maybe not the sex tape. Yet. Though, yeah, no, still young. No, but... <laughs> But I'm sure many of us women have been in relationships that have caused our female friendships to wane, and this becomes extraordinarily heart-wrenching and guilt-inducing. The problem, I think, with uh, trying to argue that um, this is good, that, the, that these are good representations, is perhaps the form. The degraded, vapid form of reality TV drama means we necessarily discount the integrity of real emotion. So I guess my solution is that we recognise that perhaps this form, this scripted knowing reality TV, be read with more nuance so that the content is no longer obscured. So to conclude, I'd like to play a very brief Hills parody, and there are many, but I picked this one particularly because I think it brings together some of the points I've made. Um, I think it conveys the nuance of the, hill, the Hill's formal aesthetic. And one could call this kind of aesthetic a kind of mash-up in advance. So anyone who knows the program would recognise the idiosyncratic editing style. So the camera will dwell for just a beat too long on a face that is, ostensibly, responding at that very moment to their interlocutor. But it's clear that this response is in reaction to another narrative event. Um, you know, within that same episode. And what this parody I'm about to show manages beautifully also is to capture Spencer Pratt right at his most Tom Cruisiest best. Um, if we could just play that clip, please. 
Hey, what's your name? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Woo! Are you going to wear that freaking hat everywhere? Only a true man like Jason Mraz can wear a wicker hat to dinner. You're even going to wear it in the restaurant? You got a problem with that, bitch? No, cow man. Move. What should we get first? A cat? A dog? A monkey? A zebra? An alligator? A spider? A lizard? So there's no baby on that list. I was gonna say babies. Maybe babies? No baby. What have you got against babies? I mean, you know that I was wanting to get bigger boobs and then a bigger family. No, I didn't. At my age, my mom already had a baby and had another baby on the way. Angelina had like five babies on the way. I mean, I don't want to be Madonna old when I finally start having kids, Spencer. 23. You know what you married into? <clears throat> Is this a marriage or a dictatorship? Notice how I just poured for myself because I wouldn't want to assume that you wanted some. You know what you want is what I want, and what I wanted was what you want, and what you want is what I want, and what we want is what I want, and I'll always look up for both of us. Uh, that's not always true because I don't want to have kids. Yes, you do. You just don't know it yet. I'd like to um, welcome ECB to the stage. Thank you. Hi, girls. What's the one thing that you want to have on a desert island? Matches, seeds, salt and pepper, a water filter? I don't think so. The one thing a smart woman wouldn't do without on a desert island is their mascara. Right, it's the number one essential item in any modern woman's survival kit. And what kind of mascara do you choose? One that adds voluptuous volume and maximum impact with just a few strokes that will last for hours? You want a mascara that extends your lashes, thickening them, growing them, hardening them. You want fat lashes. So throw away that 2,000 calorie mascara because this new product will make your lashes so fat that Jenny Craig will throw up all over your face. It's a mega-calorie trans-fat-injected deep-fried mascara and it's made from 100% lard. Don't settle for fat lashes. Make yours utterly obese. In fact, your eyelashes are like little penises. And this mascara is Viagra. 
Viagra for your eyes. So crack a fat around your face, girls. You're not stuck on a desert island. You choose to go there with cellulite-boosting mascara in your pocket. And hey, if you get hungry, you can always suck on the brush. So throw away that water filter, brainiac. Forget those seeds which you could sow to start a crop of nutritious food providing vitamins essential for survival. You would look stupid. Here's a smart woman swinging her big fat lashes, dripping cheesecake, saturated corn syrup, huge fatty boomba lashes with extra dollops of big fatty fatness. We're going to need a whaling ship to rescue her, right, ladies? New obese mascara lard, lard for the eyes. Available in stores now. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Esther and Easy B. Our next lady is Clementine Ford. Clementine Ford is a writer, broadcaster, and performer. Variously described as quick-witted, a quick-witted firebrand and an ugly bitch by her supporters and detractors alike. She lives in a house with no digital set-top box. In practical terms, this is somewhat like living in Dorothy's Kansas before the Land of Oz introduced her to the world of colour. You can on occasion hear her on Triple R or for decidedly more potty mouth rants, you can follow her on Twitter. Please welcome Clementine. I just have to grab my computer where it's been charging. I also appreciate that as yet I'm the only one that does not have a professional bio to read out. <clears throat> um, also, Easy B, amazing. And just before I do my my little talk. I just wanted to make a note about Fatal Attraction. Um, some of you may be familiar with this, but originally in Fatal Attraction, she, I think, killed herself. And in test screenings, men across America yelled, kill the bitch! So they refilmed the ending. So thank you, America. Oh, I made another note on my hand as well. Um, yeah, I was just kind of depressed watching all these clips that were coming up throughout the night because... There's so, like, such limited options for women on TV and in film. And one thing I noticed recently... Has anyone here seen Rango? No, don't be shy. No, no one. All right, just me. Um, so just before I went to see Rango, I was reading a little bit more about the Bechdel test. And does anyone know what that is? No? Yes? Okay, well, it, basically, Alison Bechdel used to write this comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For. And in one of the strips back in the 80s, one of her characters said to the other one, I'm going to go see a movie tonight. And the other one said, well, I don't go and see movies unless they satisfy three criteria. One, there has to be at least two women in it. Two, they have to talk to each other. And three, about something other than a man. And when you apply this test to a lot of TV and film, it's actually really depressing how, how often it fails to kind of succeed. And I was sort of noticing that when... Um, I was watching some of the clips and when I went to see Rango, I was really, really annoyed because it's basically the blueprint for every kind of hero quest you've ever seen on TV enacted in front of you. And it really struck home to me how far we've regressed when it comes to representing women on TV because the only thing you can present is one woman character. There's maybe a couple of peripheral ones, but often she doesn't talk to them. But the way that they get around saying, well, you can't be angry that we've only got one woman in the film, you know, there's... Ten, 10 guys, sure, but there's a female, 
and she's feisty. What, you can, what can you be angry about? So that kind of segues nicely into my talk, which is about Roseanne. Did anyone uh, happen to read the essay that Roseanne published in New York Mag this week? Yeah. 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 Well, it kind of uh, sort of helped my talk and sort of didn't help my talk because people, if they've read that, are going to be kind of basing it on that. I chose not to mention, I like to think that actually maybe, maybe she wrote it because of me because I contact, contacted her on Twitter actually and asked her if she'd be interested in being interviewed for this event. Um, I didn't really expect a reply, but with the breaking of the fourth wall that Twitter has provided, I thought it was worth a shot. And all she could say was no. (laughs) She actually didn't say no. She said a lot of other kind of mean things. But I'll get to that later. (laughs) But I actually only realised she'd replied when at least three of my friends contacted me with various text squeals. Oh, my God! They proclaimed, Roseanne's talking to you! Yes, Roseanne had mentioned my name on Twitter. And she replied with a very simple, what do you want to ask me? Well, what did I want to ask her? I realised just how personally important this was to me, to all of my female uh, contemporaries who'd grown up on a diet of mostly fluffy, prissy, pink-clad girls who wanted to be cheerleaders and for whom, certainly in the artificial land of the sitcom universe, the primary roles available were that of precocious young wind-up doll, thank you, the Olsen twins, or exasperated yet charmed housewife. Sure, occasionally you'd have a Rebecca from Cheers who was quick with a comeback and a snappy wit, but even Kirstie Alley ticked all the boxes required of women on TV. Beautiful, check. Just enticing enticing enough without being slutty, check. Sassy, but not bolshy, check. (laughs) Certainly, incarnations of female role models on broader TV have come a long way since those days. In fact, when it comes to strong, complex and well-developed female characters, one can bypass mainstream film entirely and head straight to the boob tube. Battlestar Galactica's Starbuck, which unfortunately if Sage Walton had been here tonight, I think we're going to get a talk on that, so I'm upset. (laughs) Veronica Mars' eponymous girl detective, and Nurse Jackie's drug-addicted health professional. Even Parks and Recreation's Leslie Note manages to exist in a comedic context while being a fully-formed headlining character, possibly because the show is written by a woman. But when it comes to women in mainstream sitcoms in the year 2011, I'm afraid we've gone right back to the beginning. Consider this. Roseanne ran for nine seasons. As a creator and star, she was a revolutionary. In a half-hour TV series, complete with primetime slot, canned laughter and studio audience. She created a world that defied all of the conventions which had previously and still are considered to be the comfortable domain of the sitcom family. She was fat and unapologetic about it. She was crass, working class, unashamedly feminist and unashamed to admit it, progressive, confident, and she refused to be steamrolled by the people around her. But rather than the nauseating mother-child relationship so often inhabited by sitcom wives and husbands, see, according to Jim, King of Queens, the rules of attraction, home improvement et al., Roseanne and Dan Corner didn't exist on a wash, rinse, repeat cycle of Roseanne playing carer to an intellectually disabled (laughs) man-child. Unlike other manifestations on screen, Roseanne Connor's relationship with Dan was deeply sexy, supportive and very, very real. More than anything, you got the sense that these people weren't just existing together in amiable partnership, but that they really liked each other. 
There's a reason swathes of women in their 30s still list John Goodman, a morbidly obese, not even middle-aged anymore man, whose back catalogue includes that intensely creepy character from Barton Fink as one of their all-time top ten crushes. Dan was the blueprint for TV husbands like Medium's Joe Dubois and the United States of Tara's Max Gregson. Sometimes he calls Roseanne Rosie, which I find quite sweet. <laughs> he isn't the provider, failing at a number of business ventures, but nevertheless embodying any, everything that a man wants to do, which is be, do the best by his family and the woman he loves. Roseanne isn't his prop, but his equal, and he hers. And we have never gotten such a clear example of that since the nine years of Roseanne's run. In those nine seasons, that brief glimmer of what it could be like for women and men in comedy on television, Roseanne covered a gamut of topics that in 2011 would be seen as... In 2011, this is more than 20 years since she started writing the show, would be seen as too untouchable to even be mentioned on mainstream family-based sitcoms. Perhaps relatively benign by today's standards, the following scene, which I'll just get you to cue up, still remains one of the most deftly and beautifully handled approaches to female puberty I've ever seen on screen anywhere, TV or otherwise. It stands out in my mind not for its honest approach to Darlene's first period, but for the reinforcement that Roseanne Connor, a working-class mother in blue-collar 1988 Illinois, gives her youngest daughter. <laughs> what are you doing? Getting rid of all this junk. Oh, I get it. You think you got to leave this stuff behind you now. Like women have to give up baseball gloves and start wearing aprons and stuff. All I know is I'm not shaving my legs or wearing pantyhose like Becky. <laughs> you think I make Becky put on makeup and wear perfume? No. No, she does it because she's always liked that kind of stuff. That's the kind of woman she wants to be. Well, that's not the kind of woman I want to be. Well, then what are you throwing all your stuff away for? These are a girl's things, Darlene, as long as a girl uses them. You love all this stuff. That's reason enough to keep it. I'm probably going to start throwing like a girl now anyway. <laughs> Definitely, and since you've got your period, you're going to be throwing a lot farther. <laughs> God, why me? Because you're lucky. All right. Move. Now you... You get to be part of the whole cycle of things. You know, the moon and the water and the seasons. It's almost magical, Darlene. And you should be really proud today because... This is the beginning of a lot of really wonderful things in your life. Yeah, cramps. <laughs> well, I'll admit that's one of the highlights, but... I'm talking about a part that's even better than that. Name one good thing that could come out of this whole mess. <clears throat> okay, I'll name three. <laughs> okay, Becky, <laughs> DJ, and what's that other kid's name? You know, that real kind of bratty one? Mom! No, it's not Mom, it's, uh... <laughs> What is it? Darlene. Yeah, that's what it is. Darlene. Thanks, Mom. Could you go now? <laughs> yeah, one more thing. Watch out for those mood swings. 
It's such a beautiful scene because not only does it reinforce the idea that there are so many different ways that you can be a woman and that neither is good or bad, it also taps into, like it doesn't shy away from what it means to get your period as well, that Roseanne's quite unapologetic of saying about saying you can have children now and, you know, that might not be your choice, but these are the things that you tap into. One of the frustrations that I have with some ways that modern women express their feminism now is that they seem so determined to separate themselves from typically kind of female things like, oh, well, when I was a kid, I didn't play with dolls, hated pink. Yeah, no, I was playing with boys' toys. As if somehow that's supposed to make them a better kind of woman, that they rejected all of these tropes of femininity. Well, what? I loved dolls when I was little. I loved Barbie. I loved pink. Does that make me worse? Does that make me less enlightened? Why does making... Why does wanting to play with boys' toys somehow make me better and more interesting? So I really, really like that scene for that. Unless we think that all the parenting fell to Roseanne, consider this touching scene between Dan and DJ, as Dan explains that old chestnut of masturbation to a bewildered Deej. What is Game Boy? Oh, don't mind me. I was just gonna get something. Oh. Hey, Deej. Um, I think that you and me need to talk about some stuff. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just not. It's just. What I'm trying to say is, look, is there anything you feel like asking me about? No. Good, good, very good. Really? Okay, look, DJ. Look, buddy, I know you're really embarrassed right now. I just want you to know that what you've been doing, it's just a part of growing up. So you're proud of me? <laughs> Well, yeah, but not for this. Um, the point is, I'm not upset with you. This is something that everybody does. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> do you do it? Like I said, DJ, everybody does it. Do you do it? <laughs> Look, the, the funny thing about this is, and even though it's okay and everybody does it, there's nothing wrong with it. Nobody ever, ever talks about it. And the brilliant thing about that scene, of course, is that Dan had the opportunity to walk out, and in a less mature and actually a less well-written sitcom he would have done and it, the, the domain of the explaining the sex might have just left been felt uh, sorry fallen to the mother or just been ignored entirely but that was never the way that Roseanne worked Dan was always a hands-on parent he always took as much interest in the kids as Roseanne did and that's not necessarily something that you see in sitcoms in 2011 and I also think that credit has to be given as well to Sarah Gilbert and Michael Fishman for being so young and playing those scenes in a way that you can, for whatever things that you hear about Roseanne and the culture of work there, and she certainly exposed a lot of that in her essay in New York Mag, possibly 
the truth lies somewhere on any scale. I choose to believe what she says. But for those kids to have been comfortable doing those scenes does indicate that there was some kind of level of familial trust on that set, and I think that that's a wonderful representation. So as the series progressed, Roseanne introduced gay characters, domestic violence, abortion, mental illness, drug abuse, alcoholism, and teen pregnancy, and this was before HBO. After finally ousting series creator Matt Williams, and those of you lucky enough to have read the exoriating and brilliant essay this week will be aware of the history behind that, she was finally given the freedom to take some truly daring leaps in her field. This comes from a 1997 article reflecting on Roseanne as the series took an acid trip towards its finale. Once Roseanne wrestled control of the show from its credited creator, Matt Williams, midway through the first season, Roseanne quickly became more uneven and more exciting, deepening its laughs to become the most culturally open-minded series, comedy or drama in TV history. Roseanne's ongoing creative dilemma has always been the fact that she yearns for the respect of her industry and her audience, even as she wants to explode their timorous, hidebound notions of what a sitcom, and even more crucially, what a woman can be. So that was from Entertainment Weekly magazine. And it was really the female characters in Roseanne that popped and sizzled. More so than any other TV show, Roseanne's women were fully formed characters with complexities denied to them in modern mainstream sitcoms mainstream sitcoms. Becky was originally established as a high school nerd who loved school and strived to do well, yet she was also a girl on the cusp of womanhood who was about to explore the first stirrings of lust and sex and everything that accompanied that as a teenager in an America gripped by an obsession with purity and celibacy, an America that for years under George Bush Jr. provided funding to schools with abstinence-only teaching policies, this following scene, written almost 20 years before girls like Miley Cyrus and Vanessa Hudgens were trained to participate in watch culture and then apologise when that participation could no longer be controlled by their Disney contracts, is a revelation. I'm in my room. Okay, be right back. Rosanna, can we talk to you for a minute? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Kind of personal. Oh. Uh, Darlene, go out and play. <laughs> play? I don't play, mother. Play, pack, whatever. <laughs> well, I guess now mom gets to be let in on the big secret. Now, Roseanne, Becky's got something really important she wants to talk to you about, and she'd like for you to be really sensitive. Just forget it, about Jackie. it. I can't no, yes, this. you can. Yeah, go ahead. Come on, Beth. Well, Mark and I are getting along really good now. And I know you guys aren't crazy about him. But you gotta admit, he's, he's trying really hard. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I was thinking, you know... Note the cross? Um, just in case we decide to, um, that it's time f for me to um, get some birth control. Great, Roseanne. <laughs> Becky has such a wonderful, progressive, open-minded mom that she can talk to about that.
Well, I was going to go to a clinic, um, but Jackie thought that maybe I should go and see your gyne gynecologist. gynecologist. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> really? So this is okay with you? Uh-huh. <laughs> you're kidding. I can't believe how great you're being. I'm so glad Jackie made me tell you. Roseanne, I thought that we should uh, take her. Oh, sure! <laughs> sure, we'll take her. Oh, great! I'm so glad oh, I told her. Thank sure. you so much. Thanks so much, Mom. Oh, boy. So. <laughs> this is a good thing, Roseanne. Are you crazy? She wants me to take her to get birth control, and that's a good thing? You need to sit down? No, Jackie, no. I need to lay down in a great big pine box. <laughs> she came to you. She confided in you. She trusts you. That's a good thing. I cannot handle this. Yeah, you can. I can't do this. you can. No, I know, I know. I can't do this. <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> Again, for a show, this would have screened in the early 90s, so different to the America that we know today. And just uh, watching that film makes me think of a few different things. Um, firstly, the cross around the neck, I think, is incredibly deliberate because Roseanne, Barr herself, and also the family, whilst they don't, they're not a church-going family, they do have a, a kind of spirituality. And there's a scene um, in Series 6 where DJ goes to his parents and he says, you know, I just want to know, what religion are we? And Dan's like, well, my father was Lutheran, my mother was Baptist, and Roseanne's mother was Jewish, and her father was Catholic, but, you know, I don't really know what we are. And Roseanne says, well, we, we're good. We basically believe in being good. And Dan says, yeah, but we're non-practicing. <laughs> And I think that it's those kind of really subtle things about Roseanne that you wouldn't necessarily... Like, she's not beating you over the head with it, but she's got the cross there, but, she, but there's also this sort of reality about what life is like for teenagers. She doesn't want her kid to have a baby. That's the reality, you know? Um, she's also saying, I think, to the blue-collar working-class kind of demographic that she's representing that maybe, especially now, is more inclined to be a bit more conservative, um, certainly in Australia when you hear talk back and I've worked on it and listened to it a lot so I know what that's like. Um, again, she has a conversation with DJ in season seven where DJ has refused to kiss a black girl in a play. Whether or not it's because she's black or because he just doesn't want to kiss a girl, I don't know. But she says, hey, black people are just like us. They're every bit as good as us and any people who don't think so is just a bunch of banjo-picking, cousin-dating, barefoot embarrassments to respectable white trash like us. <laughs> so I appreciate that about Roseanne as well. And just finally on that scene too, I think that there is a tendency in sitcoms to really prostrate yourself towards the children. You know, the children are fucking amazing. They can do nothing wrong. We cannot possibly put a little needle in that precious, precious ego of yours. And that was never the case on Roseanne. Those kids knew that they were loved, they were encouraged, but they were also treated like real people. 
So, although primarily a show about a working-class family and their determination to survive in a completely dysfunctional environment, Roseanne was also defined by its approach to female relationships. Fulfilling every requirement of the Bechdel test, the women in Roseanne's world didn't just pass in and out of each other's lives, bound by the claggy glue of the surrounding menfolk. Together, they demonstrated the beautiful capability of women to form supportive, complementary relationships with each other. Aside from the standard sibling rivalry that exists in every family, Becky and Darlene were never pitted against each other. They had, as Roseanne pointed out so early on to Darlene, chosen the kinds of women that they wanted to be. And although they were different, there was nothing better or worse about that. Similarly, Roseanne's relationship with her sister Jackie, although at times bickery also, was nothing less than the most enduring relationship of her life. Together, the women in Roseanne's life banded together and held hands as they found their way through this life as the enduring principle in their creator's mind was that this was the only way for women to progress and find strength. When Roseanne tackled one of America's last great taboos in domestic violence on a primetime sitcom, she wasn't just writing a story for Roseanne Connor's sister Jackie. She was writing the story of so many women across the world and giving them a voice and a purpose. She addressed and took away the blame that so many women inflict on themselves for being beaten. And I'd like it to be noted, noted that this, was, this isn't a storyline that I think would be touched in mainstream sitcoms in 2011 because it isn't considered palatable to an audience eating their dinners, all of whom desire to be entertained. Roseanne Barr took the reality of American life, both working class and universal, and she packaged it in a way that it had an incredible amount of raw realism, heart, and absolute appeal to an audience who could in some way recognise themselves in these flawed and perfect characters. And if you could just play the last clip. Are you okay? Yeah. You ready to go? Come here. What? Darlene says your back's all bruised up. No. It's nothing. Well, then let me see. No, don't. Come on, Alex. Stop. Darling, you get out of here. What's going on? Now, darling. Look, I'm all right, so don't go blowing this up into something it's not. Okay? What happened? Nothing. Let's go eat. No! I'm not going to go anywhere until you tell me how you bet that'll be. I told you I'm okay. You come over here, your back is all bruised up, you won't tell me nothing about it. How do I know if you didn't get raped or mugged or something? Does Fisher know about this? Why, why can't you just drop it? That son of a bitch. You don't understand. He beat the credit. No, he didn't. It's no big deal. It's no big deal? What are you saying? He hit you. It's not like he forgot your birthday. We had an argument this afternoon and he pushed me a couple times. Not Fisher's fault. Then whose fault is it? I, I can't believe that you're, you're saying, saying You that. don't even listen to me. He said he was sorry and, and it would never happen again. Damn, Jackie, you were a cop. You heard the same crap a million times. Now you've thrown it out on me. How could you let this happen to hey, you? Shut up! You don't know the whole story. He's been under a lot of pressure lately. There's no work. And I told him that he should look for a job at a bigger company. And he told me that I didn't believe in him. And... He told me a million times when he gets in a mood like that that I should just walk away, and I didn't. I just kept pushing him and pushing him. Don't say any more. What happened? Fisher beat the crap out of her. What? I'm all right. I just, like, I don't want anybody to know about it. Is she really okay? 
Yeah. Yeah, come on. I'm gonna go wash your face. I think about the fact that the the most traumatic and emotional scenes in late 90s sitcoms were Ross and Rachel breaking up because he had sex while they were on a break. <laughs> and how many episodes did that get played out over? And so I, I look at that a scene like that that dared to put something like that in a mainstream sitcom, mainstream sitcom, and I just I just can't believe that we've regressed so far. So this clip says to me so many things about the structure of Roseanne and the ultimate message she was trying to get across. Darlene's concerned for her aunt, but she knows that this is a time when she needs to listen to her mother, despite the way that she constantly presents herself. Present in her interaction with Jackie is the bond that she thinks should exist between women. There's a frustration for Jackie's willingness to blame herself, but there's also total love and support for her distress. And it's juxtaposed immediately against the relationship that she has with Dan, which is the kind that ultimately every man and woman should strive to have if they're going to have a relationship with each other. We know immediately that Dan would never hit Roseanne and that that is the message, is that that is as it should be. He isn't special. He's just a man as a man should be. The unspoken words between Dan and Roseanne indicate their deep bond and Dan's immediate drive to punish Fisher indicates the response that we all need to have when it comes to domestic violence, a zero-tolerance approach. But it also demonstrates the role that men need to play in combating oppression and violence against women. Roseanne Barr couldn't change men's minds if they're determined not to see the value in women. But maybe a hyper-masculine man like Dan, who is also not a caricature of himself, can. So this to me is one of the defining and most brilliant moments of Roseanne's nine season history because it encapsulates so much of the message that I feel she was trying to impart on America and the world. Um, I've got quite a bit more, so I'm just going skip to skip to the end because I'm probably going a little bit over time. Um, but in terms of the kind of world that Roseanne was creating in series nine, which is where it lost its way, according to a lot of critics, but, you know, because they won the lottery and they started going on all these trips to New York and to spas and stuff like that. Could it be said that Series 9, rather than a failure, was actually a portent for the obsession that would strike America and the world in the decade following 9-11, that of artifice and wealth and superficiality so beautifully portrayed in The Hills, <laughs> which I was watching. I don't know if you've seen that um, YouTube clip of the Wonder Years when they take out all of the narrative. So it's just Kevin and his mother just sitting in the kitchen. <laughs> just looking at each other. In the final episode of Roseanne, we discover that the entire series has been a story penned by Roseanne Connor, and things that we thought we trusted turned out to be slightly false. She changed characters. Um, she rewrote the story as she wanted it to be, which is really basically what Roseanne Barr was doing in the whole history of the show. Dan, the love of all of our lives, had in fact died a year earlier. And it was an odd and curious way to finish a show that had been characterised by so much heart, I can't think of another sitcom that has ended its final moments with the death of a beloved character. And whether or not it works is not something that I'm really interested in pursuing. It's the risk that she took with doing that that's interesting to me because she, more than anyone, I think, on a mainstream three-camera sitcom format like that, has been prepared to take risks. Her final lines include some of the most poignant moments of any series I've seen, and I've been addicted to many. 
She reflects what should be the focus of all superficial comedy shows that pretend to be about family but are actually about the reinforcement of cultural stereotypes like, ha, 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 can we see if we can make that woman a housewife and a bit of a shrew because she also gets really feisty and really everyone knows that she's the boss in the house because she can withhold sex and isn't it hilarious when she does that? So Roseanne finishes the show by saying, Dan and I always felt that it was our responsibility as parents to improve the lives of our children by 50% over our own, and we did. We didn't hit our children as we were hit. We didn't demand their unquestioning silence. And we didn't teach our daughters to sacrifice more than our sons. That, to me, is a line you would never see on a modern sitcom. The Connors were an imperfect breed of Americans. They were perhaps more reflective of your average American than any other sitcom on TV, but we've been led to believe that what we want is something to aspire to. The sheer success of a, of a show written by a woman as unapologetic as Roseanne, as crude, as vulgar, as delighted by herself as she had every reason to be, but some people would have disagreed with, is indicative that even some of us who don't live in a blue-collar American society found something of ourselves in that family. She was a revolutionary but we've been suckered into thinking that the time for that is gone. A few years after Roseanne ended, the number one show in America was Everybody Loves Raymond. Ray Romano systematically destroyed everything Roseanne created in her heyday, and I'm sure it, it wasn't intentional necessarily, but he capitalised on a system that has always been predisposed towards reinforcing the status quo. With that, it was back to frustrated mothers in the kitchen raising four kids, including their husband. And until recently, the number one show in America was Two and a Half Men, if Everybody Loves Raymond destroyed the aims of Roseanne, two and a half men covered them in gasoline, set them on fire and shot them out of a cannon made of silicone and the last remnants of Hollywood's respect for women. How can we have gone so far only to regress so much? So, what did I want to ask Roseanne? I wanted to ask her if she knew how much she meant to women like me. I wanted to ask her how she felt about the destruction of women's integrity and autonomy since the days of her show. And I wanted a quote that I could bring with me here tonight and use as evidence that I had broken the fourth wall. <laughs> After a brief exchange, which was not in any way positive, <laughs> she wrote this. You're ignoring the work I do now for the work I did 20 years ago, and that's the problem. I suddenly realised that it must be very hard to be crippled by a legacy that people celebrate but won't continue, particularly when you're a woman still battling to succeed in an industry that hates you and quite often writes you off as being batshit crazy because you express views that aren't necessarily expressed by anyone else. So I suppose on that note, all I can do is leave you with this little exchange. Roseanne says to DJ about the play with the black girl. You're doing that play and that's all there is to it. Well, Dad said I didn't have to, and Dad outranks you. Are you new? <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to welcome Easy B back to the stage, please. I'm a girly girl. I'm just a girl. I'm a real girly girl girl. I'm just a real girly girly girl. I'm a real, you know, just a girl's girl. <gasps> Are you telling me that there's a yogurt that tastes like cheesecake but doesn't have any fat in it? Oh, 
OMG. Shopping is my kind of cardio. Cardi, oh, what a bargain. What's the three words every girl wants to hear? It's on sale. <laughs> Shoes. Hey girls, it's tea break and I have some guilt-free muffins. Guilt-free muffins for everybody. I just got back from the courthouse where these muffins were on trial for murder and they got off scot-free. Free of calories, that is. <laughs> Can't get into the nightclub. We'll flirt with the bouncer. God didn't give us girls long lashes for nothing. Fashion. Accessories. Abs. Oh, I love abs. Oh, abs are great. Oh, abs. He's cute, isn't he? He's cute. Oh, what a, what a cutie. What a cute farmer. Oh, farmer wants a wife. Oh, cute. I wish farmer wanted me. Cute. I wish he'd come and plow my field. <laughs> I want him to open me like a lettuce, squash his face into me like a fresh, juicy, ripe, swollen tomato, and suck out all the seeds. <laughs> I've got nothing to say. Oh, it's naughty having chocolate, isn't it? Oh, it's naughty having it. It's naughty, but it's indulgent too, isn't it? It's indulgent. It's nice having it. It's just me time with chocolate. It's just me. Me and chocolate on my break to me time. And when my, when my husband comes home, I can slip it into the Pilates DVD cover and be all like, "Huh? do you want to do some Pilates? And he'll be all like, no, honey, as if. And I'll be like able to continue to stuff myself full of chocolate in private without anyone knowing, keeping it all to myself, because that's normal. I'm just chillaxing with a Diet Coke because I'm on a diet. So I'm having diet now. No, thank you. <laughs> no, um, excuse me. No, thank you. No, I'm on a diet. Oh, no, I'm on a diet. No, oh, oh, no, I'm on a diet. I'm on a diet. I'm sorry, I'm on a diet. I'm on a diet. I'm on a little diet. No, I'm sorry. I don't want to be on a diet. I'm on a diet. I'm on a diet. I'm on a diet. Die! Yeah. Ew, feminism. <laughs> Feminism's gross. Ew. I don't hate men. Gross. Ew. Feminism. You want me to empower this? Honey, this is on full power already. <laughs> Feminism is gross. Okay, so girls, I'm just off now to get my bra for my four-year-old daughter, collect my unequal pay, wax my asshole, and individually laser off each hair from my vagina in a long, painful process. <laughs> See you guys later. I'm dying a little bit. That's excellent. Thank you. And thank you to Clementine. Our final speaker for the evening is Catherine Devney. And Catherine Devney is a writer, comedian and social commentator best known for her work on ABC 774, Q&A and as a columnist with The Age newspaper. Her one-woman show, God is Bullshit, was a seller in the 2010 Melbourne International Comedy Festival and enjoyed a return season in 2011. 
Catherine Devaney has been named in the top 100 most influential Melburnians. Her extensive charity and community work includes Griefline, the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre and Broken Rights. She is a proud ambassador for Dying with Dignity Victoria, the big issue and International Day of People with Disability. Devaney is writing her seventh book, Tantrum with Reality, uh, which will be published by Black Books in December 2010. Please welcome Catherine. Um, seeing so this is the, uh, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, for some ridiculous uh, reason, I decided to, uh, this morning to make my first PowerPoint. Uh, so I'm going to be celebrating being here at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image with still images. Um, I'd like to apologise in advance. I've never done this before and I've already had uh, PowerPoint envy and I wish I'd put it on black. Um, but it's been a fairly long night, so please excuse me, but I had so much fun doing this, I just couldn't stop. And uh, when my partner came home from work at five o'clock, he said, you're still in your 90. And I said, but look at my PowerPoint. Okay, butte shillers and top roots, slags, scrags and moles from Aussie telly, we have loved. Okay, number one, Delvine Delaney. So I just went back in my past and thought about the women that I remember from Australian telly. Now, Delvin Delaney was on Channel 9. She was on a show called The Paul Hogan Show. Now, she was the first of the many Channel 9 women that I call Garnish. Um, <laughs> now, she was on a show called The Paul Hogan Show around 1977. Um, it was a great show. There was lots of jokes about wogs, abos, gays and women. You mightn't recognise her face, but you will recognise this. Um, because this is what all of the women wore during the show. They wore their bikinis. Every single woman on the show who ever appeared wore their bikinis because, let's face it, how else could you see their tits or draw on them with texture? Um, my memory from this particular snap was it was some kind of joke about being a weather girl and having the weather chart painted on her. There was a joke about warm and wet and a little bit of texture pointing down to her vagina. Um, if you look up Delvine Delaney or any of the women that I will refer to as Garnish from Channel 9, you'll find that there's no quotes attributed to them because, let's face it, who cares what they said? Um, but as I've written at the top, at least she's out of the kitchen. So I don't think we can really complain, as um, Clementine was saying before, which I agree, it's like, what are you complaining about? At least there's one woman there. Okay, so um, look out. Um, you can't go past Garnish without talking about hey, hey. Hey, hey, two in pink. One has a hand stuck up, but bet you can't guess. Well, I can. It's wacky Jackie McDonald. And there she is um, down the front. And, geez, we love Jackie. We were mad about Jackie. She was very talented at wearing clothes <laughs> and standing on the right and remembering that's where she was supposed to stand. She was not only very good at wearing clothes, she was also extremely good at smiling. Um, despite looking like she may possibly be about to be date raped. Um, she just kept smiling. Sure, Daggy, whatever you say. Now, I'm fairly certain. Now, I'm 42. I know it's hard to believe. I use a cream. Um, my memory was that Jackie McDonald, 
laughed a lot and she was on the show and God, we loved her because she had such shiny hair and white teeth. And, um, and then when she left, they got her sister Fiona McDonald, but it seems to have been wiped from the internet altogether. And Fiona McDonald was a, a slightly meatier version of Jackie, but I can't find her anyway, but there we go. Get that into your love. Alrighty. Now, here we go. Here is the cast photograph of, um, of Hey Hey. And, um, you'll see a man, another man, two men, a man, two other men, and a man in a suit, um, and a guy at the front. Um, as you can see, even Plucker and Dickie get in the shot. That's the cast of Hey Hey at Saturday. And here we go. Here is the board game. Hey Hey, it's blatant chauvinism that the whole family can play. You've got, uh, man, 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 puppet with a man's hand up it, another man, man in a suit, and of course at the front, Dickie Knee, a, uh, a wig on a stick wearing a hat. Now, what does, what does it say about Australia that a, and held by a man? Um, what does it say about Australia that a wig on a stick wearing a hat held by a man, got more airtime on Australia's longest-running, most successful, most awarded light entertainment show than any person in possession of a vagina. <laughs> what it says is... Blokes bring a bottle, ladies bring a plate. No route, no ride, no, fat chick shit me. Okay. <laughs> In today's nighty haze, I came across this photograph and this, there was no better evidence of the, to represent Australian television than this picture. I rest my case. Middle-aged, middle-class white man who pretends or God or, or, or who believes in God or pretends to, middle-aged, middle-class, okay, Bloke, 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 lady, bloke. Not just about gender, but let's look at the age. About 50, about 50, about 50, about 50, about 50. Looks about 20, looking like she's 12. I rest my case. There can be no discussion about women in Australian television without a huge mention of MacLeod's daughters. Pony porn. This was the remarkable fake story of four daughters who were feisty, independent, brave and hardworking, who took to the land in order to get husbands. <laughs> to make it on their own for about four and a half months till a man with his shirt off turned up. Some call it drama. I call it pony porn. Now, this show came under a lot of criticism, particularly by me. Um... <laughs> about the lack of diversity. And as I will show you with the next image, which was totally uncalled for, because you can see, the, with the, here are the main characters, strong, diverse women who represent our sophisticated modern society. Um, people say there was no old people, no, no older women in this um, drama series. That's not, that's not true. The woman in the top right-hand corner is 24. Okay. Now, um, they basically all got husbands in the end, and um, here is uh, the bride um, turning up, um, dog on a horse, 
Um, and as you can see, great representation of strong, brave, independent women. She's there on her horse with her bridesmaids. And there they are, look out, rocking out with their frocks out. Imagine that tens night, hey? So there they are, great Australian tradition, the bridesmaids. And here she is with the groom. And you can, tell, you can see that she's with the groom because he's taller, he's wearing a suit, and she's acting like she's retarded. <laughs> That's what happens when you get married. So she did arrive on a horse, bareback and bare-shoed, but now she's married, she's leaving on the back of a motorbike with her husband and wearing, look closely, come-fuck-me boots. <laughs> Which is a great example to young girls everywhere. Okay, so now let's get back to Hey Hey It's Sausage Fest because I think this is really important. We need to get back to the... the the Hall of Garnish fame that is the women on Channel 9, a show that if you watch long enough, you will get cancer of the soul and the heart. Um, okay, so hey, hey, it's a sausage fest. Now, look out. Here's Lavinia Nixon. Now, she's a, a, a you are very pressed to find a woman smarter, funnier, or more ambitious or more intelligent than Lavinia, but you wouldn't know it because they treat her like garnish. Now, you can see her there. I, I read an article today talking about uh, Lavinia, who we love because she's beautiful and for her wicked sense of humour. Um, I'm sorry. Again, no quotes because who cares what she says. So here's Lavinia. Um, she's played um, the garnish to uh, Ed to Eddie, to Daryl, to Peter Hitchner. There's no one that she hasn't stood beside and worn a little puffy sleeve dress and um, kind of, you know, smiled and looked like garnish. So there's Lavinia there, no shoes and uh, looking natural. We like them natural because the worst thing you can be in Australia is up yourself. Then you tell, pipe down, princess. There's Lavinia and uh, look out and there we go. Lavinia gets married, uh, Lavinia's big low-fat wedding. Lavinia gets married, another miracle, skinny pretty lady has a baby, she's had a baby, and look out, guess what, she's back to work. She's super slim and she's back to work, which is just great news for everybody. Um, there's not many kinds of women you can be on Channel 9. You can be Jackie McDonald, you can be Lavinia Nixon, you can also be this woman. Katrina Roundtree, I'm really sorry, uh, I should have warned you before. <laughs> Um, this is Katrina Roundtree. Now, I'm sure she's a very, very nice person, but for some reason I have an overwhelming urge to back over in a monster truck if I ever see her in a car park. And it's not because of envy. It's not because of anything apart from the fact that these women are turning back feminism 150 years. Here's Katrina, and, um, you, you know, you may or may not know she's one of the presenters on uh, Getaway, which is a travel show. And how does she keep her slim figure? She doesn't eat the food, she just holds it. Um, I was hoping to find a picture of her with the flower behind her ear, wearing a sarong and um, uh, drinking a margarita in front of a scene like that, but that was the closest I could get to. Don't eat it, you'll get fat. So there she is, um, holding food. Look out, dream wedding. Look out, dream baby, and relax. She's back into her skinny jeans already. She's bounced back. She's got her, her pre-baby body back. And you know who are the most thrilled? The women who are the most thrilled are the women 
who are overweight, they're still wearing their maternity wear, their child is three months old and can't sleep, and they're sitting in the doctor's waiting room going in to get antidepressants for their postnatal depression, and they open this up and they just they suddenly just feel a great sense of relief that at least <laughs> Katrina is back into her genes and her body has snapped back. So um, look out. But, um, you know, we've seen the younger women. Who else? do we think of when we think about Channel 9. Now, this woman isn't Garnish. She is the grand dragon of the boy sucks. There we go. It's Kerri-Ann Kenley turning back feminism 150 years every time we see her face on the telly. She's not just a mole. She is a mole on the face of television and our great history of strong, brave, progressive and maverick women that Australia has created. Um, she's not ever given one single woman one single chance or leg up in this industry. And she does continue to not only not help any women get any further, keep them down by saying things like women who are sexually assaulted by um, footballers are strays and asking for it. So good on you, Kerri-Ann. Good on you. Boy suck. All right, so let's just take the... Um, oh. About time we saw a brunette. We are seeing now. This is Channel Nine. This is the kind of this is the basically the only kind of brunette that you'll see on Channel Nine. Um, this is a show called The Footy Show, which is a bankrupt orgy of male chauvinism, um, and um, it is that is uh, Sam Newman, who is a, a vain me- megalomaniac and a bully, and that is a picture. That's not Caroline Wilson. That is. Um, a face of Caroline Wilson that he's put onto a mannequin. Now, Caroline Wilson, if you don't know, is one of the most respected, most intelligent, mo- most highly informed sports commentators and journalists that we we have. So for some reason, he thought it was a great idea to just stick her face onto a mannequin wearing, it looks like, um, a silver bikini. Um, he did that, and um, as he did that, the master pig in suit himself, there were other pig piglets in suits sitting on chairs in their suits going, oh, Sam. So it is really nice to see a brunette, even if it is... <laughs> Just on the footy show. Um, that's the only way you're ever going to make it on telly um, if you, you know, you're not blonde. Um, okay, so um, look out. Let's get, look, I just thought, look, let's look at our Kylie. Let's just get that nasty taste of our mouth. Here's our Kylie. And, and God, didn't she go a long way. She was like, she was, a, she was an orphan, Charlene, the mechanic. And then she went off and married the guy with the hair, um, who we all kind of went, yeah, that's going to last. Um, I looked at that wedding and I thought, what was she thinking, that chip in her hair? But she's done very well and it was a, an incredibly successful series, Neighbours Was and Is, for, any, for, for no other reason than um, the fact that it keeps people in work. And um, when you see, it's also a great encouragement to kind of fat, ugly guys out there, you, you know, that they can get on telly too if um, Toadie can. All right, so... Um, here is Lisa McCune. Now, we're going across to, to basically kind of Channel 7. Now, Lisa is undoubtedly, like, she may be a gold Logie winner. Don't hold that against her. One of the most remarkable, adaptable, professional and deeply talented artists that we have in Australia, without a doubt. 
okay? She has performed so many roles. You can see her. She's naked. Uh, she's a judge. Uh, down the bottom there, she looks like she's in, um, uh, what is it, uh, uh, the, You Can't Handle the Truth. Um, uh, down the bottom there in the stockings, she's a little bit saucy, but she's not like McLeod's daughter. She's not horsey. She's saucy. Um, you can see that she's up uh, in the top corner there looking a little bit Austrian um, slap dancing because she's playing Maria in Sound of Music. What is it you can't face? She is certainly adaptable and she's happy to ug up. And you can see that because she was quite happy to play a policewoman for uh, several years on Channel 7. Yes, I know that the um, the PowerPoint looks like my nine-year-old did it, but I've never... Well, they did. I made him stay home from school. Um <laughs> But there we go. She's done all of that stuff and she truly is remarkable. She's a a lovely person and that's not normally um, a virtue that I admire in people. But she's very hardworking and she's very talented and she's very good at what she does. She's professional, she's a working actor and she will have a stab at anything. But who cares? She's a celebrity mum. She has a vagina and that, that is what is most important because who cares what she does on the screen? It's just important what she does in the kitchen and in the sack. Now, it's at this point that I want to talk about something that we just see all the time and, um, and it's not just in Australia, but I can tell you right now, it's not everywhere. It's what I call the gender representation ratio scale. In Australia, on any show, you generally see my estimation is... One woman equals about 3.5 men. Here's the panel. There's Kate and four blokes. You wouldn't think anything of it, would you? Uh, Rove Live, 2009. There's Carrie Bickmore. And there is six fellas there. And um, Carrie's great. She's smart. She's terrific. Uh, my memory was in the show, she read the news segment and then she sat on the end at the couch laughing. Um, <laughs> Good news week, not co- it's it's really I mean apart from the fact that the other two are pricks. Um you've got Claire Hooper and it's not uncommon for her to be the only woman um on the panel or there may just be another one. So you, there'll be seven people there and that you'll get one or two, possibly three women max. Um that's quite normal. And um but Claire Hooper, she's certainly not the first person that comes to mind if you think brave, insightful progressive, edgy. No, no, she, she, she looks pretty, she laughs a lot. She's funny enough to make it look like that she should be there, but not too funny that she kind of outshines the blokes. And I know the sad thing is she's a very, very funny woman. But, you know, let's not just look at how many women are on air. Let's look at what they're allowed to do, what they're allowed to say, how often and how they are expected to appear and how they're supposed to make the men look because that's the most important. Um, talking about your generation is an uh, outrageous. It's really common to tune in to that show and see six men and one woman. Now, I know Amanda Keller is brilliant, but she's certainly... Um, what, what's the problem with putting two women on? What they might fight? And how this is constantly... Uh, time and time again, we just see this. If you saw a show that had six women and one man, it would be called a women's show. If you just see one woman and six men, that's just called a show. All right, uh, again, uh, 7pm project, there's, um, well, we need, you know, too much Charlie's, never enough. Um, and, uh, and Dave Hughes, he's on everything. These people are very talented. There's no reason I want Dave Hughes there. I want Charlie Pickering there. I just want our televisions to represent the sophisticated and diverse world that we live in. Um, 
and MasterChef. Again, yes, there are female chefs on there, but the three people who've got the power, they're making the money, the ones who will never have to worry about a work opportunity again or a project are the three guys. Again and again and again. If it was three women, it would be called a women's show. And you're sitting there going, oh, come on, Dev, there are women's shows. You know what? There's one. The circle. Um, and I, these women, and I know the women that work on the show too, are remarkable. Why these women? Why this show? And why are they expected to do the kind of subjects that they're, they're told to do? These women are smart, funny. They can talk politics. They can talk insight. They can talk e- economics. They can be filthy. They can be crass. They can be cutting. They can be probably what some people would call offensive. But no, it's, um, it's, it's plastic containers. It's cooking. It's diet foods. And then it's like, come back after the break. We're cooking cupcakes for our studio audience full of pregnant ladies. If we have one women's show, supposedly, on television, why this show and why these women talking about this at nine o'clock in the morning, like women don't go to work and like men all do? That's not a show. That's a women's show. Now... That's commercial television. Let's go over to the ABC. Um, the commercial television can do what it wants as long as it makes money. It's just a, it's a commercial enterprise. The ABC has a charter, the charter I know back to front. It talks about uh, gender balance, innovation, pioneering and uh, sophisticated viewing and content that represents the diversity of our society. It wasn't uncommon, and I remember one night watching um, In a Row, there were Spicks and Specks, uh, two women five men, uh, followed by the Gruen transfer, eight men, one woman, and then the Chaser Boys, all blokes. And, of course, I sent out a tweet about it, said, not good enough, oh, you're just bitter that you're not on, Devney. Oh, what, so you think the Chaser Boys... No, 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 no. No. Let's not jump to that conclusion. I'm just saying that's not right. That's not fair. That's not sticking with the charter. That's not representing all of us. And the fact that you have to alert people to it time to time, a time after time, is 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 alarming, hilarious, and terrifying. So, am I living in some kind of crazy utopia that I think it could be possible that it could be a, a long-running show on television where you can have women that are all different shapes and sizes, all different ages, who have stories and characters not based on their relationships with men or their bodies? Is that possible? Yes, it is. Because we had it. We had Prisoner. We had Prisoner where every single woman, even Colette Mann, got an acting job on Prisoner. It was an extraordinary show. It lasted a long time. And I know from those women that um, they are getting... I think there's only two of the characters that are getting any residuals from that show, which is still playing and he's still making money. It was an extraordinary show. These women, they were lesos and laggers and screws and thugs and they were mashing their heads into each other. They were having their, their hands put in the press for lagging to the screws. And there's B. Smith, the original ranger, no makeup, no fancy hair. It wasn't about who they were shagging or how they looked. It wasn't about that at all. It was storylines. It was characters. Yes, it was hilarious at times. It was all about women, but no one has ever called Prisoner a women's show. 
It was just a show. It was a show that you snuck out at night and you sat next to your mum and dad and you pretended you weren't there and they pretended that you weren't there and you just watched it and you learned so much. This is what I learned from B. Smith. Right, are you lag? Oh, put your hands in the press if you talk to the screws again. So there she was. Um, I don't have a picture of... Um, of Colette Mann, who played um, Doreen. Uh, there was uh, Lizzie Birdsworth, who was hilarious. You don't see faces like that on screen anymore, and I wish that we did. She spent the entire um, her entire run on Prisoner, um, trying to make moonshine by putting two potatoes in an ice cream container and put it, leaving it on a hot water service. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how that worked out for her, but Lizzie was fabulous. They were, they were all fabulous. She didn't, you know, it wasn't about men. It wasn't about looks. It wasn't about money. It was just about, it was about these crazy lives, these big, messy, vivid, hilarious lives. You know, the freak. I remember vividly. I kid you not. I was probably about the age of my son, Hugo, who helped me make this presentation. I'll have to write a note to school tomorrow. Um <laughs> And I remember saying to my mum, Mum, why, why won't the freak win the gold Logie? He said, well, we, they'd never give it to someone like her. I said, yeah, but she's the best actor on television. It's like, yeah, but she's not pretty enough. And she's a lezo. <laughs> and vinegar tits. <laughs> I want to grow up in an Australia where my kids can watch a show. They can creep out at night, my three little boys, sit on the couch and pretend they're not there and I pretend they're not there and they're watching a show with Lesos and Crims and Lizzie Birdsworth making moonshine and talking about a character called Vinegar Tits. (laughs) That's what I want. Now, I'm going to wrap now, but I know you might feel a bit disheartened. You may feel a bit sad by, you know, We've come a long way, baby, but we're still fucking here, all right? But there is a way forward. There is some great young talent out there that is out the future of Australian media. And there is one particular young woman who I think that we should watch. She's going to move us forward into the next generation. She is not a boy suck. She is not eye candy. She is not garnished. She's not defined by a relationship with a man. She speaks from her heart about what she believes on and she is our way forward. We look to her and we just keep going. And, of course, I'm speaking about Bindi Irwin. (laughs) There she is. What a woman. Sure, maybe slightly defined by her her father, um, Steve. But she is our way forward. Look at her. She's not dressed to be sexually objectified. She's not out there talking about, you know, the shoes that people should wear. She's talking about the environment and she's getting you to buy her doll. Now, (laughs) I've bought something here tonight because I want you to feel the Bindi magic. This is my Bindi Irwin doll and um, I'd like to pass it around and for you guys to feel the power of my Bindi doll. And be careful, she's a bit mousy. And look out, unlike the women on Channel 9, I talk. So, I'd like to hand this around. I'd like to touch, I'd like you all to touch my Bindi Irwin doll. And I'd like to finish, I'd like to thank you all for being tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd like to grant you this one wish. I, I hope you don't die and I hope you get laid. Thank you everyone for coming and thank you to Easy B, Catherine Devney, Clementine Ford, Esther Milne and Mel Campbell. 
Um, I did want to have a Q&A, but it is, it's getting late for a school night. So while you're all feeling up um, the, the special doll, I might open the door so you who need to depart can go out. And um, if anyone wanted to ask particular questions, you can come down and say hello to the ladies. So thank you so much for coming tonight.